We're back with Couch Talk. <laughs> Tell me about your seltzer. Yeah, I, I forgot. I, I literally was pulling on my browser and looked at this and was like, oh, yeah, I was doing this thing. So I've been making stuff with seltzer, and I said I was doing the seltzer and, like, the, the bitters. But I was trying to think of, like, other cool things I could do with seltzer water because it's fun and I can make it and I like the process. Uh, and I was like, uh, so one thing I did was we use cold brew coffee at our house. Mm-hmm. So we have the, the concentrate that we make ourselves and we yep. add water and whatever. And I'm like, wait. I could put some milk and some seltzer in here and that would be really cool. It's a, it's a fizzy coffee beverage and it's pretty good. Um, it is, it is slightly acidic because of the alkali coffee or the alkali in the thing, but it's it pretty good. Hmm. I was like, wait a minute, this reminds me of an egg cream. And I have, I have had like two egg creams in my entire life. I've never had an egg cream. Well, you're going to soon cause I'm making them. <laughs> um, yeah. But I was like, oh, I could make an egg cream because an egg cream is milk, seltzer and chocolate syrup. Yeah. But uh, we don't buy chocolate syrup in our house because it's full of gross things. <laughs> Mostly high fructose corn syrup, which we generally try to avoid in the foods that we purchase, at least the grocery store. Okay. Uh, and I don't, I, I primarily drink diet beverages if I'm drinking like a Coke or something. Because yep. those typically don't have high fructose corn syrup in them. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm against it for health reasons, but also because end corn subsidies. Because mm. uh, I don't like that we're subsidizing people to make corn, so we have more high fructose corn syrup, so cokes cost less. <laughs> <laughs> like that's it's a bad cycle. Sure, yes, it is. King Corn is the documentary you want to watch if you want to learn more about corn subsidies. Corn's bad. Yeah, yeah, corn's bad. But I'm like, oh, we can't buy chocolate sauce because it's got high fructose corn syrup in it. Right. And so we do buy Magic Shell. So if we want something on our ice cream, we buy Magic Shell because uh it's fun it's fun but it's also like chocolate and palm seed oil like it's it's there's no high fructose corn syrup it's all like pronounceable ingredients huh i wouldn't um, expect that we didn't either we were we were like shocked when we saw that but we're i like, would expect it to have uh, a bunch of weird stuff in yeah it. yeah but it doesn't and so we use that if we're making ice cream for an ice cream put magic shell on it instead yeah. of chocolate sauce which is fine but you can't make an egg cream out of out of chocolate Magic shell. <laughs> no. <laughs> it would not work well. And I was thinking about it. And so I, I Googled like chocolate sauce, no high fructose corn syrup, like as, a, as just a search term. And then I saw all these recipes, like you can just make your own chocolate sauce. Mm. Uh, and of course, I found an Alton Brown one. And I'm very excited to try it out because it's, it's, you make a simple syrup, water and sugar, mm-hmm. and you add a bunch of cocoa powder until it's chocolatey until it's chocolate syrup like it's a syrup made with chocolate huh what's all the other junk that hershey puts in it i don't know (laughs) (laughs) but like it's literally in the name chocolate syrup like it is a syrup with chocolate in it uh you put you put some salt in it because salt and chocolate go so well together of course Uh, and you put like two tablespoons of light corn syrup, which is not high fructose corn syrup. It's a dextrose based syrup and is very, makes it shiny and keeps it soft when you're using it. Uh huh. Yeah. But like, that's it. Like you boil the water and sugar into a syrup, mm-hmm. add the cocoa. You got to do it slowly because cocoa is hydrophobic mm-hmm. and the corn syrup. And then you put it in a squeeze bottle. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So you're gonna make your own chocolate. I'm gonna syrup, make my own chocolate syrup, and then you're gonna use that to make with your greens. own with my own homemade gun seltzer thing. I just need to buy a cow, and I'll be set. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man, imagine. Oh, 
That would be a killer egg cream. I can't even comprehend the satisfaction of like, you wake up early in the morning, you go outside, say hi to Bessie, your cow. Yeah. I call my cow couch talk. <laughs> C-O-W-C-H. You go outside to your barn and you milk couch talk. Yeah. Um, then you make your own chocolate syrup and you fizz up your own uh-huh. <laughs> your fizzy own, water, your own fizzy water and you make, make yourself an egg, an egg cream. cream. Yeah. What do you do with the egg? There's no egg. I know. <laughs> There's no egg. There's very little cream. <laughs> Um, but you're from a land of egg creams. Not if there's there can be plenty of cream if you this is freshly well, milked. Fresh, milk. yes. Then there would be absolutely be cream. Yeah. But, oh. Yeah. Oh. Um. I don't think our egg creams go all the way up to the Boston area. Is it more of a New York? I specific? think it stays in New York. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's not a Texas thing. The but between Providence and Boston is um. Uh, coffee milk territory though. Coffee milk. What's yeah. coffee milk? Uh, are you is it f- coffee with milk? No. Okay. You'd, Just checking. You'd think. Yeah, but an egg cream doesn't have any eggs, so what do I know? <laughs> True. Um, you familiar with chocolate milk? Yes. You're familiar with strawberry milk? Yes. Coffee milk. It's milk. It's milk. But with, it's made to taste like coffee. So it's like a Nesquik powder sort of thing? No, like you buy it bottled. Oh, that's even like weirder. you go to the grocery store and, and you have milk, coffee milk, chocolate milk, strawberry milk, and coffee milk. That's weird. Or like you can buy like a pint bottle of it at a donut shop from a from a beverage refrigerator at places. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. That's not a thing I've ever encountered. Like it's in vending machines. Yeah. But you know, I've definitely been I've been making a lot of food the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Some of that is because Amy is is like hip deep in dissertation, and so like so you're doing the, the all of the cooking falls on me. Um, I don't know what she's eating tonight because I'm here. <laughs> Should tell I her hope, to get some Totinos. I mean, she knows I'm here. I communicated that early enough that she's probably okay. From a scale of <laughs> from a scale of zero to hungry guy, how much does Amy want some Totinos? <laughs> probably like 0.5. <laughs> Totinos are not really in her wheelhouse. Yeah, they probably have a lot of corn in them. Yeah, they're not. They're not good for you. <laughs> But I've been, I've been cooking a lot, uh, and I I got for Christmas I got Alden Brown's latest cookbook called right. Everyday Cook, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the recipes are like traditional Alden Brown recipes, which means they take like six steps in three days. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Alden Brown has more multi-day recipes than anybody. Yeah, he's got a lot of those, and I don't cook those, but he's got a lot of recipes that are like easy and efficient, and I can make them pretty mm-hmm. quickly, and like I have the recipe memorized at this point. Like right. I've gotten to that point, like. Uh, he, there's a salsa that he makes in the book that's it's a really good roasted salsa. Mm-hmm. And like it's six Roma tomatoes, five jalapenos, a red bell pepper, half an onion, a red onion, six cloves of garlic. You roast those in the pan in a broiler. Mm-hmm. Put them in your pan, cover in oil, put them under the broiler, roast them for 20 minutes, stirring every five. Um, put all of that in a blender with some... Oh, uh, two ancho chilies. So those go in the, in the not the blender, but the food processor. Mm-hmm. Uh, some chili powder and the juice of a lime. Mm-hmm. And blend until salsa. That sounds pretty easy and really good. Yeah. Um, but then I have to go a step further because he's got a recipe for chilaquiles, mm-hmm. which is um, fried corn tortillas with salsa 
an e- uh, fried eggs on top and cheese. Mm. Um, oh. And so, like, more than once, I have made that salsa and then immediately made chilaquiles with it. <laughs> and, like, I stopped looking at the recipe book because I can just make it now. Right, right. Um, which is really good. He's also got a weeknight spaghetti. Um that the the trick to that is making herb oil hmm. uh, which is you put a bunch of herbs in some oil and boil it until they steep like tea basically right right um, it's in, infused yeah yeah probably i think infusion is done with like time rather than heat but heat and time are equal in cooking like you can change out one for the other yeah yeah a lot of the time uh so I made like a pint of court oil, maybe a quart of herb oil. Um, and you can make a spaghetti sauce by throwing a couple teaspoons of that, tablespoons of that into a pan with some canned whole tomatoes and cook them down. Hmm. And you've got a killer tomato sauce. That's awesome. Yeah. And so I've got a jar of this. And so it's, it's he calls it weeknight spaghetti because you can just open a can, drain the tomatoes, throw them in the pan, and the herb oil does all the flavor. You throw an anchovy in there too, because that gives you some good uh, hmm. unctuousness. Man, having herb oil around sounds like a nice yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's really awesome. Uh, in in the book, he talks about uh, he stole the idea from Bobby Flay, Iron Chef Bobby Flay, because mm-hmm. when Iron Bobby Flay was on Iron Chef America, like he would always at the start of a round, like have one of his sous chefs go cook up some batches of herb oil, like just a couple different batches of different herb oils, right? Because it's basically a culinary time machine because you just have that and it kickstarts all of your dishes you throw it into anything and it's got a ton of flavor to start off with right i like that yeah and so the one i used had like 10 bay leaves a couple sprigs of rosemary and thyme and some garlic hmm and i think i'm gonna make that yeah and it was 16 ounces of oil and you boil it till it all turns brown turn it off the heat let it steep for a while and strain everything out and then just sits in a jar and you use a couple tablespoons whenever yeah when I'm making spaghetti. Or you could use it for other things. Anytime you have oil, right. you can throw it in there. But, like, those are the kinds of recipes I like because I just taught you how to make that thing. Right. Like, I can remember it. I can hold it in my head. Some of his recipes are like, you know, juggle three kumquats <laughs> while riding a unicycle. Yeah. And, well, yeah, some things you always need to look at the recipe yeah. to, like, get a specific order or a specific timing yeah. or something like that. But... Yeah, put herbs in oil, heat, time. Yeah. And it, it boils because all the water in the fresh herbs and stuff will boil out, and then the garlic will boil out. So the, it looks like it's boiling. Right. Um, but the, the oil isn't boiling. Yeah, it's yeah. just the water all boiling out. Um, but yeah, it's super awesome to just have that in the fridge. And I, I used olive oil. I think I used olive oil. Yeah, I used olive oil. So it like it thickens up in the fridge, but that's right. fine. You throw it in the pan, it gets hot. It's fine. But it is it is super easy to be able to cook i gotta try that. that but yeah those are the kinds of recipes i like because i've i've gotten decent at cooking like somehow <laughs> like in the last five years or so like I, yeah like i tweeted the picture of i made oh these were really good i did a roast chicken um in my dutch oven mm-hmm. uh, also an alton brown recipe uh you brine the chicken for eight hours in a saltwater solution because mm. that makes your chicken amazing <laughs> Um, and you cook it in the Dutch oven for 30 minutes or so. Um, and they take the lid off in another 15 minutes so the top gets round. And then it's done. Like, that's all you have to do to it. That's awesome. 
uh, yeah, the recipe is like a four pound chicken and salt. <laughs> so you can brine it. Right. Uh, so I made a roast chicken and then I did his maple bacon Brussels sprouts. And I've been eating a lot of Brussels sprouts because Brussels sprouts are good. I didn't know Brussels sprouts were good. They're really good. They're really good as long as you're not, like, boiling them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had Brussels sprouts once when I was 10 or something and thought they were nasty. Yeah. And then didn't have them again until I was 20. Yeah. And they're so delicious. They're amazing when they're cooked right. Right. Um, And so you roast some Brussels sprouts. You cut them in half, roast them on a pan with some oil. Um, and oh this is what you do first sorry for the maple bacon Brussels sprouts take four slices of bacon Mm -hmm. you pan roast you roast those in the pan that you're going to put your Brussels sprouts in so you put that under the heat you get it all crispy yep Uh, you take that out take the bacon out you cover the Brussels sprouts that you've cut and prepped in the bacon fat instead of oil yeah so they're roasting in the bacon fat roast them for 20 minutes then you make the maple sauce, which is um, some maple syrup, like the real stuff, grade yeah. B, because it's the best, mm-hmm. and some Dijon mustard, Ooh. and you mix that up, um, crumble up the bacon, and pour over your Brussels sprouts and mix until combined. That sounds delicious. Yeah. And so I made that and the chicken, and I didn't cook either of them in my cast iron skillet, because... I cooked one in the Dutch oven and one on a roasting pan. Yeah. But I put the chicken and the Brussels sprout all in one pan. You may have seen the picture on Instagram. Yeah, I remember great. it. Mm-hmm. And Amy just, and I just put that down on our coffee table and took a knife and a fork and went at it. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. That's great. I kind of want to make that. Yeah. It's really good. Like, we're, we, the, we bought the ingredients for it again. Oh, we really? went grocery shopping yesterday and we bought a chicken. We have the bacon already when we bought the Brussels sprouts. Like we're making that dish yeah. a second time because it was that good. I need to like, I ha- so since I've lived here, yeah. I haven't purchased maple syrup. Oh, I'm sorry. Because it's so expensive. It is. Down here. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it's still pretty expensive anywhere. Yeah. But, like, but it's, it's a lot got more a long way to here. go to get here. Right. But like, I, I remember I moved here with like a thing of maple syrup. <laughs> like when we moved like there's there's some food you don't throw out and one of yeah, those is your yeah. almost still full bottle of maple syrup yeah but like when i ran out i was like oh, i want to get more maple syrup and then i go to the grocery store and it's like 20 dollars <laughs> for maple syrup i'm like mm, i don't know but it's good but when i was in florida actually my sister brought she lives in maine mm-hmm. they've got more maple syrup there she didn't bring maple syrup but she brought uh maple candies Ooh, those are good too oh oh and they just melt yeah. Like they're a little like crystally. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love them. Good stuff. The, the maple flavor is like, it's so unique. Yeah. Like, cause it's not just like sweet sugar. Yeah. It's it, a, it's it, mapley. Yeah. It is sugar and it is sweet, but like the maple is so, yeah. Oh, and it, it enhances so many different things. Yeah. But I've never thought to have it with Brussels sprouts so it, or chicken the it all goes like the brussels sprouts i love like i love the chicken i've made the chicken a couple times and it's mm-hmm. it's a great chicken yeah because it's brined and roasted like it's delicious it's hard to go wrong um 
but the bacon and the the hint of bitterness from the Brussels sprouts and the sweetness and sourness from the from the Dijon mustard and maple syrup, right? Like just perfection. The mustard is the thing I would never think of. Yeah. Well, the mustard cuts the maple syrup, so it's not too sweet. Yeah, of course. It's oh, like I'm making that again this week. <laughs> like I might get up You're tomorrow. Gonna go home and make it right now. Well, I might get up tomorrow and make sure I put the chicken in the brine. Like yeah. I'm gonna wake up early to make sure I'm brining that chicken because it was so good. I think I might go buy a chicken next time I go grocery shopping. Yeah, four pounder is what you want, roughly. Yeah. Chicken and maple syrup. Yeah. You got any Dijon mustard? No, I guess I gotta yeah, buy. You don't have anything. I've looked in your fridge. I keep very little you have food cheese. on hand at a time. You most have like of, four types of cheese in there. Most of <laughs> cheese is very important. <laughs> I started doing a thing. It's pretty dumb. It's called the Fantasy Movie League. Okay. Um, you get a theater and a budget, and you have to pick what screen, what te- what movies you're going to screen in it. God. But it is based literally on what's screening this weekend. Uh-huh. And so the box office totals determine how well you do. It's it's fantasy sports, but for movies. Yeah. That's clever. Yeah. Well, any the, the results just came in because it's Monday, so the weekend results came in. Um, so I can see how I'm doing. I'm going to make a recommendation for you. Yeah, I like recommendations. Um, have you played the new iOS game called Stagehand? No, I have not. Um... It's an endless runner. Oh, a twist. What a twist. And it's it's a couple bucks. I think it's like $2 or $3. Um, Here, I'm going to give you the tutorial and just let you play it. Play it live on air. Play. Drag down. Ooh. Okay. Nope, I died. (laughs) Clever, right? That's pretty clever. Yeah. And it's really hard yeah i can see that like i can't normally with i I really like endless runners yes. and i'm fairly good at them mm-hmm. and normally it, i it changes your brain right like i can yeah. very quickly progress to like okay i'm learning this game too now i'm good at this game yeah i can't get good at this game yet have you tried super hexagon yes super hexagon is like notorious for how difficult it is yeah i've beaten the first two stages have you yeah i didn't like it Oh, because I I would figure it hits that same endless runner scratch. Yeah, but I just I don't know something about it. I just I didn't enjoy it, so I didn't really play it that much. Yeah, I played it a lot, but yeah. now I'm good at it. At least I'm I'm good at the first two levels. Yeah, yeah. My high score is on the first level is 98 seconds. That's good. 60 is the is the bar to clear. Like yeah. you're beating it at 60, and then you move into the hard version of that level. Yeah, and theoretically, I have to try and do another 60 seconds, but I made it 98. That's pretty good. Yeah. You should, if you're looking for a game to kill time, you should get Stagehand. Yeah, I'm still playing the the tapity tap 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 Titans too. Oh, the one where you just tap. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking to play a game, <laughs> a real game, you should play Stagehand. Yeah. If you're looking to just tap your phone, I'm pretty good at tapping my phone. Yeah. I also I oh man, I feel like I've got like a drug problem. Uh, I started playing Cookie Clicker again, which is the same kind of game, except it's on your browser. Where you just tap. Well, you don't tap. You click. So you click. Yeah. Uh, although the thing about this is, and it's like Adventure Capitalist in the same way that eventually you're buying things that click for you. Right. And so you don't have to, so it just sits and runs in my browser window. That's... And then I buy more upgrades. It's 
kind of preposterous to me that you're someone who is so into games mm-hmm. and like like you care about them, you know a lot about them, you're passionate about games, yeah. game design, and you'll play something like Tap Titans 2 or Cookie Clicker or Adventure Capitalist, which are they're feedback loops. They're not they're nothing. Like nothing's happening. The number get bigger. Right. The number get bigger. Just make numbers bigger. Number bigger. Bigger, big <laughs> number. Number get bigger. Number get bigger faster. And like, I don't understand how your brain can enjoy the intricate complexities of like really beautiful. I've been playing a lot of Skyrim, for example. Right. Like, <laughs> like really beautifully crafted game mechanics yeah. and also cookie clicker. Yeah. Number get bigger faster. I don't it's like the highest and the <laughs> basest of instincts. Yeah. And you well, and what's funny is streams. I'm picky about my iterative games. Like Cookie Clicker, Adventure Capitalist, and Tap Titans are oh like God. the peak of the genre. Like those are the most popular ones. I've played some lower tier ones and they're terrible. Really? You're getting picky about like the quality of bigger number games? Mm-hmm. You got to have the right loop. So the numbers have to get bigger at a good rate, but not fast enough. And so you have to buy more things to make them get faster. There's, there's a loop inherent in the iterative game. And if that is not constructed well, like a lot of work goes into constructing these correctly. You only play bigger number games made by the finest of loop craftsmen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's very upsetting to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but Endless Runners have a, have a loop. Like so many games that you play a long time have a loop. Mm-hmm. The Endless Runner loop is, oh, I could have made that. And so you start it again. Right, but Endless Runners are a skill like you you're developing a physical Mm -hmm. skill in getting better at something as you get better at the game there's no skill in bigger number there's there's there is some decision making skill there's there's a ton of math behind the really good ones which is fascinating right um because you figure out the rate at which different end upgrades will make things get better faster and so which ones to buy you can it's almost like a fantasy thing. It is. Like it is a, a, It is in that same sort of like thing. It's a management. Yes. Yeah. And it does become like a management sim in a lot of ways. And that is... But there's also... One of the things that I like about them is they are relaxing because there's mm. no failure state. Right. Because even if I make a suboptimal move, the number is still getting bigger. Right. So I can play... And there are people who play like super optimally. I got to get everything perfect and make the right purchase every single time. And you can do that because usually the math is clear enough that you can either figure it out or use a tool. Like there are third party tools that allow you to do it better. Oh my God. Or you can just click the number and get it bigger and it'll eventually get bigger. Cause bigger number. Cause bigger number. So there's, there is a relaxing or maybe even like Zen like quality to them. Cause you don't lose. Hmm. I don't think I'm capable of enjoying a game that way. Okay. Like I, like if I was gonna play one of those yeah. games, I'm an optimizer, so I would have to. I well, would. You be, can do that. But like, it would stress me out to not optimize. To, to always be, like, I would have to know that I'm always doing the the absolute optimal thing. See, and to I me, that couldn't, that, and I couldn't enjoy that. Yeah, that that's. Uh, you're correct. That's exactly how you would have to play it. Yeah. Um. And so, like on Cookie Clicker, I have a I have a plugin on my game of cookie clicker, clicker, which tells me what the optimal purchase strategy is, <laughs> but it doesn't do it for me. There's some that'll just literally you start the plugin and it makes the purchases for you. 
and it just runs. Like there's one optimal game of Cookie Clicker and having this plugin makes everyone play that one op- optimal game. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Well, there's more optimal games because you can cheat in cookies, so you can adjust the code of the game oh my God. and literally like cheat in, and there's an achievement for it called cheating cookies um, where you just add cookies to your total manually by just increasing the number by affecting the code on the back end. I wish podcasts could show my face. <laughs> uh, it's like the Picard face pong gif. There are depths of hell I did not know existed. <laughs> this is unreal. These are like third party things, like yeah, that other people have made. Yeah. Oh boy, it's a whole genre. Like I am, I have dipped my toe in. I am not like super deep in any of these. Yeah. Wow. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't have, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have anything. Yeah, it's. it's it sounds like I the like. biggest waste of time ever. Well, but, like, it runs while I do other things. Like it's not like I'm actively paying attention to it most of the time. Right, but like, what are you? What do you, What do you get out of it besides like? I I do understand the relaxation part. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you get out of it besides that? Number get bigger. <laughs> okay. Like I, I don't have a better answer for you than number get bigger. I guess as long as you can acknowledge that, like there isn't a better answer than the, than the dumb one, <laughs> that's fine. I like making the number get bigger. Yeah, it's nice to have bigger numbers. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes small numbers are good too, right? I don't know. Could you make an iterative game about making like fractions? That's a good question. Negative numbers? Well, no, ma- but making like the like a half then a third then a quarter and like how going just a different version of number bigger yeah but going into like the negative because a lot of their express their numbers in scientific notation i mean yeah it doesn't take long number get big no yeah number get scientific so do the opposite of that and have going into negative scientific notation where it's it's you know thousands of negative zeros right not negative zeros but zeros before the number that you're making yeah you could do that it's scientific notation or scientific notation with a negative sign in front of it, or yeah. scientific notation under one. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Someone must have done that. Should, but it's the same exact thing. I should text my friend who knows more about these than I do and see if anybody's done <laughs> a fractional iterative game. Yeah. They're called idle games, clicker games, iterative games, because they iterate. Are they, is there, are they games? Like, do they fall under a yeah. definition of game? Yeah. Okay. Well, some of them have goals like and things you accomplish. Like Cookie Clicker has achievements, like make a million cookies in a second. Oh. So for being able to reach certain milestones, you get accomplishments and yeah. things like that, which ties into the same loop. Like, oh, I did a thing, so I can try harder to do a thing better. See, I used to think these things were like jokes. Like people made these games to like make fun of the people who played the less obvious versions of these mm-hmm. games. Like the the popular app store genre of uh white man cartoon white man who's screaming that like you I, know that oh icon? Yes, yes, sorry the icon i'm thinking i don't know of a game where there's just a white dude screaming <laughs> yeah no but the, i'm fascinated by that idea but yes like, what, what, the clash of clans, clash of clans or yeah. the you know fire age war yeah like those are kind of the same thing. yes yes they're just abstracted a bit so mm-hmm. it's not obvious that it, they're just yeah. make number bigger yeah um so I always thought like things like Cookie Clicker and um, Adventure Capitalist mm-hmm. were like satire, 
Yeah, and there's what's funny is there are games that are certainly satires in that sort of realm. Uh, there's one, I think it's called Derivative Clicker, <laughs> where there is no there is no theme or skin above anything, um, but it's got a really good tight loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that an industry term? A tight loop? I made it up. So <laughs> yes. Um, but you, so you buy an upgrade that like produces. I think it uses money because I think most of them use, I think a lot of them use like money as the currency. Right. Crazy idea that. So you buy an upgrade that says build, you know, um, buys $1, gives you $1 every second. That's your first upgrade. Um, And then you buy the derivative of that, which says gives you one first level upgrade every second. And so the number of first level upgrades you have continues to increase once you've bought that second level upgrade. Mm -hmm. And then third level upgrade gives you one second level upgrade every second. Then you're getting two first level upgrades every second. Yep. Like that's a, that's a real smooth loop. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm just realizing because you said like a lot of these games use money currency as the thing. Um, Real life is kind of just one of these games for a lot of people yes. where it's just make the money get bigger. It certainly is. And that's uh, that's kind of it. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's honestly like adventure capitalist is a bit of a satire of that. Right. Like that's so it it is it and is obviously a game, name. but it is kind of a joke also. Like it can be two things. Right. It can be a successful. No, things can only be one. It can only be one thing. It's one thing. It's one thing. You got to pick the one thing it is. So it is an iterative game with a very tight loop, but it's also kind of a satire of like how capitalism works, right. which is get number bigger, get number make, bigger, make number bigger, make number, pay, make number bigger and make people sadder. Yeah. Make number bigger and use the bigger number to make bigger numbers bigger. <laughs> Rich get richer. Oh man. I watched the pilot of um, The Good Place. Yeah, I'm not like I'm barely watching TV. Like this is how <laughs> this is how I'm gonna air quotes. This is how busy uh-huh. I've made myself. Like I'm trying to work on like other podcast things, and I'm trying to like read more books. Mm-hmm. <gasps> That's the other thing. I read the first Harry Potter book. <gasps> um, so I'm like I'm not watching a lot of TV. Yeah, but I have had the time to watch the pilot of The Good Place. I thought it was very funny. It is. It's very. It's funny. very funny. Um, I really enjoyed like just the the tone mm-hmm. and the style of it mm-hmm. the way it looks um it's all very good yeah i'm i'm very excited to watch more of it yeah yeah so it's promising i'm feeling better about this than i felt about the oa <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's better than the oa and it's going to keep me from just defaulting to starting a rewatch of 30 rock yeah so that's good yeah this is it, it's good i'm happy with it so far um <laughs> Yeah, I read the first Harry Potter book. Yeah, yeah, and I got the second one from the library. Cool. I haven't started it yet though. How did what? It, tell me about Harry Potter. Okay, so I know I so through cultural osmosis, I know most Harry Potter ish things. Like, okay. I don't actually know the plot of the books, mm-hmm. but like I know who all the characters are already. Okay, like when the book is talking about like you know various settings like i know i know like what hogwarts is like i know what diagon alley is like i've heard of these places i know what Mm -hmm. i know what they're all about you've not seen the movies either haven't seen the movies nope okay 
Yeah, so like I don't know the plot. Yeah. It's, so it's weird like I'm not being introduced to any of the stuff, mm-hmm. but the plot is being revealed to me for the first time. Yeah. So I like it was it was a weird experience. I've never read anything and had this kind of experience reading it before. <laughs> Because nothing is as cult- nothing is like that. Nothing's like Harry Potter, where just by existing you know so much about it. Yeah, maybe if Star I Wars, maybe I if I hadn't seen Star Wars, yeah. it would have that experience watching Star Wars for the first time as an adult. But I know Star Wars; I've seen it. Yeah, from a long time ago. Well, I mean, even something like like The Simpsons, which you were exposed to recently for the first time. Yeah, like you probably know more about Harry Potter than you do The Simpsons, even though it's been around longer right. and i would argue has a larger cultural impact over time but right like i know bits and jokes from the simpsons yeah but without knowing they're from the simpsons yeah um just because everything else steals from it so prevalently that yeah. you don't well, know it's, its, it's, defi- it's culture defining right it like is comedy yeah <laughs> um so what everyone told me before i started reading harry potter when i would tell people that i was going to read harry potter was mm-hmm. like the first book isn't good. You just have to get through it. It's very childish. I like the first like, book. It's very childish in its tone. Um, they, you know, the story gets darker and more interesting and more complex later. And you know, just get through the first book. Someone even told me, don't even read the first book. Start with book two. Who said that? Ellen did. <laughs> she is wrong. And I was like, no, I can't a, do that. I'm a completionist. <laughs> I'm reading it beginning yeah. to end. Yeah. Um. But I liked it. Yeah, it's like, good. It is. It certainly is childish. the The plot and the characters are very simple. A lot of the people are very one dimensional. But like the story is really fun. Yeah, like it's a fun, compelling story. I liked hanging out with the people. Mm-hmm. It's cool to like be in Hogwarts and experience these like new interesting wild things through Harry's eyes Absolutely. as he's experiencing new interesting yeah. wild things. Like Harry Potter is as a character is such a good surrogate for the reader. Mm-hmm. Um like yeah, it was really fun. And I'm I wouldn't I wouldn't give much merit to seven books worth of this kind of book. Mm-hmm. So I think it's necessary for it to like get more complex and darker and yeah know, and whatnot as it goes on and more adult. Well there's there's something but, really important I think about Harry Potter that is not just in the books, but it is in how the books came into this world, mm-hmm. which is that a large portion of the Harry Potter fan base grew up with Harry Potter. Like pretty much at the same age as the yes. character. Right. Which is like a, an incredible mechanism. Well, and, and JK Rowling wrote the books with that in mind. Right. That's why the first one's so childish. Yeah. And I'm just a 27-year-old man who's reading this 20 years too late or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, 15, 11, 15 years too late? Uh, 11 or 12 when you started. Yeah. Because I, I was 12, I think, when I started, and they, the first two books were out. Yeah. F- 15 years too late. Yeah. Um, and and there is... I I fully think that is part of what ties it into being such a cultural defining moment mm-hmm. is because it's not like if if you were to hand a 13-year-old the Harry Potter series right now I don't like they they could enjoy it like I don't think they would be hurt by reading them all in a year or whatever but there is something almost undefinable about the weight between and growing up as a person and starting these when you're 12 and ending them when you're in high school. Right. 
along with all of your peer group. Right. Short of those weird group, those weird people who are like, no, you yeah. don't read Harry Potter because witches. This guy. Yeah, I know. Me. Yeah. I'm making fun of you. <laughs> um, it, and there's something really powerful that that I I don't think that people reading them now can't enjoy them. People coming to the fresh can't enjoy them. But I think they're they are missing some of the the terroir, as it were. Right. Of living in the world as Harry Potter is growing up alongside you. Because when you get to do that, it becomes a very significant part of your identity. Absolutely. Especially when you're doing it at that age. Uh-huh. But even years later, yeah. like Harry Potter is so important to so many people my age because mm-hmm. it like defines that time in their life. Oh, I mean, I can name like, I think four people you work with that have, or have worked with that have Deathly Hallows tattoos. You don't know what that is, but that's a Harry Potter thing. I know the tattoo. Yeah. You've seen the tattoo. <laughs> right. Um, because it was that important and defining. And right. there are, I would not be surprised if there are more Harry Potter tattoos than there are Star Wars tattoos in the world. Hmm. Even though Harry Potter's has, has had much less time to be tattooed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how you would figure that out, but <laughs> right. I would, I would not be surprised if that were the case. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised either. Um, and I mean, so like, it's interesting cause I, I want to ask the question I'm going to, but I don't think, A, that you'll necessarily know the answer right now. But B, that you will be able to have the same answer in your heart <laughs> that someone I would, like myself, who grew up with this, which uh-huh. is, what house do you think you would be in? Um, I can't answer that from my heart. I know. Yet. Um, the houses are not defined enough and i don't know enough of the people in the houses mm-hmm. to like and it's it's particularly tough in the first book you get a very gryffindor friendly view of everything right i know gryffindor really well i don't know anything about people in hufflepuff or ravenclaw yeah um and i know that draco is in slytherin and yeah. he's a jerk <laughs> that's it there is a test you can take online that is written by the author i've i've taken the official sorting oh have you test on pottermore yeah and i took a quiz on another website, which is every possible question from the official one. Okay. Like when you take the official one, it's only some of the questions. Mm-hmm. And I've taken the full one with all the questions and both told me I'm Ravenclaw. That does not surprise me. Didn't surprise me either. Based on my understanding of the yeah. houses. I'm, I'm absolutely Ravenclaw, but I knew that going into the test. Right. <laughs> when, I, when I finish reading all the books or maybe after a couple and I have yeah. a better understanding, maybe I will feel Ravenclaw mm-hmm. in my heart or maybe I will feel another one in my and heart. That's, and that's fine too. But I, again, like that was a thing that you cared about when you were growing up and growing up with these books right. was, it was, it became the new, what's your sign in right. a lot of ways. Right. Like, what um, else are you? Yeah. And like people would like, I, cause I know like people around me would talk about that all the time mm-hmm. and I just, it wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like I had no understanding of it. Yeah. Um, the only other interesting or, okay, so there's two other things. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting observation I had was the first reading the first book felt like watching a season of television. Yeah. Where each chapter is an episode. That's it's a very episodic first book. Yeah, like it. Like here's the Halloween chapter. Here's the Christmas exactly. chapter. Exactly. Here's the yeah. Each chapter the year was in the life. very self-contained, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like the whole the book mm-hmm. as a whole was enjoyable, and it didn't mm-hmm. tell a story of a year at school but mm-hmm. it i felt like i missed so much like in between normal stuff yeah you don't you get less of their life 
Right. It's just yeah. like, here's the series of adventures. But like normal stuff is like he wakes up and goes to classes and mm-hmm. eats food and is with his friends and goes to Quidditch practice. And yeah, that's it. Yeah. There's not much story there because like, I don't know, school's boring and it's routine. Yeah. So. Yeah. And you get some of that fleshed out. But I'll I, be straightforward with you. Every book is a year. Right, yeah, like yeah. that is that is the structure of the series. The beginning of the book is his summer with the Dursleys, mm-hmm. and then yeah, it ends. And then at then the it's end a school the year. year, yeah. yeah. Um, and which that is, is which is a great format. Like, yeah, it's that's really really well thought out. Um, the okay, this is one and a half. Um, it is so incredibly dull to read a play by play of a Quidditch game in a in a novel. Quidditch isn't very exciting. It seems like it would be really fun to play, mm-hmm. really fun to watch live. Well, you can do both of those things because there are real life Quidditch matches. You cannot do those things because you cannot fly in real life. <laughs> like I would love to go watch a Quidditch game. That yeah. sounds like a blast. Reading a play by play commentary is not interesting whatsoever. Like I don't need more of that in the books. There's more of that in the like, books. Like I'm glad to hear about how great Harry is at Quidditch. I don't care about the intricacies Quidditch, of every single Quidditch game. features pretty prominently. Great. Um. So the uh, okay the the last thing. I was a couple of chapters into the book and I started wondering whether or not Harry Potter technically falls into the fantasy genre or not. Really? Yes. That's an interesting question that I've not heard raised before. Because it, like, my first thought was, oh, this is just a book. This is just like a like a young adult coming of age book about someone at school, mm-hmm. and it just has magic stuff around, mm-hmm. right? Like, and it made me wonder, like, this isn't this doesn't feel like fantasy as I'm used to it because it's not really in another world. Hmm. Like it's our world but with secret magic stuff yeah because like it like it literally could be our world if, yes because when that's the premise of the book <laughs> right like it's it is our exact universe because we here uh-huh. you and i recording a podcast don't know about all the wizards because they keep a secret from us yes which is a rule breaker for being fantasy do you think so so this is so this was all going in my head yeah. in the first couple chapters, and I was like, okay, I need to I need to define and understand what because that's how is. you do things. <laughs> because I want to know if this if this hunch of mine that oh no, Harry Potter isn't really fantasy is true or not. Mm-hmm. So uh, of course I go to the source of all knowledge of uh, what is fantasy or not, and I read Tolkien's seminal essay on fairy stories where he defines what of course he does fantasy of is of course he does um, from a very tolkien point of view yes and the essay is about a lot more than just like what is fantasy mm-hmm. um it's a really good essay so i read it and uh it goes into like there's a couple different things you can pull out from fantasy or for what like needs to exist in fantasy as okay. tolkien defines it um the first is it needs to, like, it does need to be set in another world. Okay. And Harry Potter does technically satisfy that. Because mm-hmm. it's not our world. Because it isn't our world, even though it's pretending it could be. Yeah. Um, it needs to have magic, which it does. It definitely has magic. And the magic needs to be 
um, taken seriously. Okay. And that means it can't be explained away or taken as a joke. Like the magic can't be goofy or silly. It has to just be like a real thing that exists. And it can't be turned into science because then it's science fiction. Mm -hmm. Right? Like science fiction has fantastical stuff happening, but because there's future science making Mm -hmm. it possible, fantasy is just magic because it's magic. Okay. Um, And then uh the last thing oh no two more things um fantasy needs to serve the purpose of escapism okay so it can't whereas like there's plenty of novels about like our world and everyday life and you're not using that to like escape as much Hmm. you're just like hearing us there's always some level of escapism okay uh but you're just hearing a story about something that could happen mm-hmm. right but fantasy lets you escape into and experience things that are not possible okay right in in your own life yeah whereas even something because dragons aren't real because dragons aren't real whereas even something like a like a spy novel or a mystery like mm-hmm. you're not going to experience that in your life but a person could okay um and then the final thing is like the philosophical requirement and this is like Tolkien's whole deal, mm-hmm. his whole philosophy about how stuff works. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a concept called the U catastrophe. Okay. E U, the preface meaning like good. Okay. Um, whereas a ca- similar to like Eucharist. Eucharist, yeah. Whereas a, a catastrophe is a sudden, horrible bad thing happening. Okay. A U catastrophe is a sudden, wonderful great thing happening. Okay. Um. Just for the sake of argument, what is what would you call the catastrophe in something like The Hobbit? The catastrophe in something like The Hobbit is uh, at the end in the Battle of Five Armies, the certain defeat and death is coming upon all of the characters because the bad armies are going to win. Okay. And then the eagles show up. Okay. Tolkien's catastrophes are almost always the eagles show up. <laughs> <laughs> and then the eagles show up. Um, in catastrophe. And I'm not going to be able to explain this properly. And I know we've talked about this before, but it is not deus ex machina. It's somehow different. It's somehow different. Um, because it's not, it's not just a random thing happening. It's something that has like an internal logical sense in the universe. That's already been defined. Okay. Like the Eagles. Like show- there are gods that can come and fix everything. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that has been clearly defined in the fiction. But like as as simple as like when the eagles show up in the Hobbit, you're not like, wait, there's eagles? Yeah. You go, oh, those eagles. Yeah. Oh, that Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like philosophically, it it the according to Tolkien, a fantasy story needs to subscribe to the idea that good and evil exist. Okay. Evil is a corruption of good. Okay. Like it is derived from good. Mm-hmm. So like good is the true thing and evil is a thing, is not its own thing, but yeah. it's, it's it's taken from good. And because of that, e- evil is incapable of victory. Okay. Um, inherently. And so good inevitably always will succeed. Yeah, this sounds like a very Tolkien description of fantasy. Yes. Um. Which makes it my description of fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Only because you've read Lord of the Rings a dozen times. Whatever. Um, so, I, like, I read through this essay and, like, I, and T- Tolkien doesn't describe it like this. Like, I went and distilled yeah. these ideas out yeah, of this essay. Yeah, you're pulling it out. And uh, 
I can't know for sure about the final philosophical point because I haven't finished mm-hmm. the series yet. But I think Harry Potter meets all the other requirements. Mm-hmm. It takes this magic seriously. Mm-hmm. It's technically another world, mm-hmm. even though it pretends it's not. And it is definitely, definitely serving the escapism purpose. Yes. Like, very strongly. Yeah. And I think that's actually, like, it's huge strength because of what we talked about where, like, when it was published, if mm-hmm. you're that age and you grow up with it, like, you can, like, Harry Potter is just such a good surrogate character. Like, you can... Mm-hmm completely dissolve into harry potter as a character and experience it from his eyes so it's fantasy yeah that's an interesting thing because it's i mean defining genres is always a in my mind a a bad idea i do it anyway but it's always a bad idea (laughs) right and like fantasy is more than tolkien's definition but yes that's what i would that's what i went with by far um but that's that's really interesting also because i i recently which is just in the last year or so read uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is an amazing fantasy novel mm-hmm. that meets one of those criteria, maybe? Uh, it's a novel about bringing magic back to England. So it is a world in which there is no magic and magic is being brought out. Hmm. Um, where there was magic a long time ago, but it went away. Right. The magic is magical. Yeah. But there is there is certainly not a catastrophe. <laughs> um yeah that's an interesting set of descriptors the subscribing so for in tolkien's definition like subscribing to the philo- that philosophy of mm-hmm. like good and evil is essential actually having a you catastrophe isn't essential well it doesn't ascribe to that philosophy either yeah but like good and evil he he the way he says it like having the you catastrophe is like the it's like its ideal form okay right but well, you can doesn't, doesn't have the good and evil yeah. comparison because there are not good or evil people in that book. There are there are people. Right. There are a lot of people. Yeah. And they are all people. Right. And they are complex. And it's not particularly escapist. Like it's it you don't see yourself in the characters. Um you you are observing them from a distance. You might care a little bit about them, but because nobody is inherently good or righteous. You're not like rooting for one of them, or not really. No, yeah. Like I, you, you probably like Mister Strange more than you, or Jonathan Strange more than you like Mister Norrell. Norrell, one of the characters pronounces it Norrell. It's a weird <laughs> thing. Um, but it's not like if anyone you're rooting for. If you're rooting for anyone, it's a minor character who doesn't directly impact the plot for the most part weird yeah hmm. it's a really good book i bet uh yeah and like i have to admit i i also like haven't really actually read a lot of fantasy yes you've read a lot of tolkien right i've read a lot of tolkien <laughs> so like well and so I, I was thinking i'm thinking about fantasy as opposed to as someone who's read a, a fair amount of fantasy i read a lot more sci-fi than i do fantasy but i've read a lot of fantasy um and thinking about something like because what Tolkien wrote is now commonly referred to as high fantasy. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff like um, urban fantasy is sort of not its opposite, but it is like wizards with guns. <laughs> uh, literally the first book in, not in the genre, but one of the first books that I became aware of and one of the first books that I think got public mainstream attention in the urban fantasy genre um, was the first book in the Dresden Files series. Mm-hmm. which is about a character named Harry Dresden, wizard, um, who's the only wizard listed in the Chicago phone book. 
Um, and it was its original title of the of the first book is now is officially called Stormfront, but its original first title was Semi Auto Magic, which tells you something about the world. It sounds kind of silly. It is kind of silly, yeah. but it's good. Like I like the Dresden Files series, but and now there's lots of things in that realm of modern day. We're in the world magic exists or other things exist that are like magic and somehow distinguishable for reasons. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of books in that realm and they're very popular and they're, cause they're often like murder mysteries. There's often sort of that central conceit murder mysteries from a structural standpoint are really powerful books because they ask you a question on page one and don't answer it until the end. Right. And that, that is a very compelling thing. Right. And arguably, all novels do that. Every book asks a question on page one that doesn't answer until the end. Some like are more effective a, than others. It's like what a story is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that, no, that is like that was in my dissertation or my thesis. Sure. That was like this is what a, this is how a story works. But um, murder mysteries do it very easily, and so it, bec- it becomes clear what the compelling drive should be. Sure. Yeah. Um, and if you answer a question, you have to answer it in such a way that there is more question or else the book is over. Right. If it, if it answers the question before the last page, then that's the last page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's the last page because it's where that the question's answered. Yeah. Uh, or, or it should be. It's a little tautological, but yeah. Yes. Um, and, and the first couple Harry Potter books don't, in my mind, have a very strong question being asked i think the second one has a stronger question Mm -hmm. than the first uh but it's it's not a strongly structured novel which is why you get some of these sort of episodic feel of like this thing happens then this thing happens yeah i was i was very impressed and surprised by how much the first chapter sets up Mm -hmm. um there's a lot in that first chapter because like and like this was interesting for me to to it was interesting for me to read that first chapter because I already knew so much about Harry Potter. Yeah. And like it mentions so many characters and sets up I didn't know it set up Harry's backstory that early. Mm-hmm. The fact that like his parents were killed by Voldemort and that he survived. Like I didn't mm-hmm. I knew those things, but I didn't and he was the boy who lived, yeah. chapter one. I was surprised it it mentioned that in the first chapter. Um but then it doesn't do a lot with it. Mm-hmm. It just then it's like okay, and then he goes to school and he does school stuff. Yeah, and the um, shoot, what is it? The the Sorcerer's Stone. Mm-hmm. Like he's dealing with Voldemort with that, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't know. Like the Sorcerer's Stone didn't seem to like really matter all that much. No. It wasn't. It was just a thing set up just a thing. to have a yeah climax. It's a MacGuffin. Yes, yes, yeah, very much. Finishing my original point because I forgot it halfway through the sentence, but I'm coming back to it. Um, a lot of urban fantasy has a murder mystery structure around it because it's a very compelling storyline, which is yeah. convincing to lots of people to read. Yeah, uh, but yeah, high fantasy is is a very different world than a lot of the other types of fantasy out there. Or low fantasy is sort of the opposite of that. Right. Um, and it's not urban fantasy. Low fantasy is, you know, oh, there's wizards over there. We don't talk to them. They're crazy. They destroy things with fireballs all the time. We're just trying to live. Right. Um, and so it is It is literally the people sort of in a, a high fantasy world, but from a very different perspective. They're not the wizards saving the world. They're not the guys on the quest. They're just the people. It's like, yeah, it's stories about normal people mm-hmm. in a fantasy environment. Yeah. yeah. Um, so those are, those are just a couple of the fantasy genres or yeah. subgenres that exist. 
Yeah, Tolkien lived exclusively in high fantasy. Yes, because he like and codified the genre in a lot of ways. Yeah, and like created it, kind of. There are arguments to be made. Created its modern form. He codified it in a lot of ways. I'm I'm sticking with my original statement. Okay, fine. (laughs) He codified high fantasy as we know it today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Whether he should have or not. (laughs) Did you watch the fan edit Hobbit? I totally forgot about talking about that. Um, Here's what happened. Yeah. My flight was shorter than I thought it was going to be. It was like just over two hours. So I didn't have enough time to watch it Mm -hmm. on the flight. And I realized that like 10 minutes into watching it. Yeah. And so I stopped. Okay. Also, the first 10 minutes had so many weird jarring cuts. So which version were you watching? The standard theatrical one. Okay. Like the whatever the default yeah. was, yeah. not the like really fast, not the, not the ludicrous, not or the extended. extended. Yeah, um, it was, and I don't know if may, maybe if I'd never seen The Hobbit, it would have felt better. Yeah, but I've only seen the movies once. Yeah, and watching, uh, like I only saw the scene where like Dwalin and Balin come in and they're mm-hmm. eating and Bilbo's freaking yeah. out about stuff, but like it was just some of the cuts seem so bizarre and like seem so wrong and like such a, it was it felt too weird to me i couldn't that's interesting yeah so i don't think i would have liked watching it at all yeah i i do think it gets better with that because yeah. i watched i watched all of the first hobbit and some of the second okay is about where i got because i i i got past the end of where i where i knew what things had happened right um because i only ever watched the first one and the first one ends in the warg chase Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really good cut slash transition from the warg chase to Bjorn's house, Bjorn's house, mm-hmm. Bjorn, baby Bjorn, Bjorn, yeah, like baby Bjorn, yeah. Um, which is and and I figured out what it was what it was only because I had not seen mm-hmm. the Bjorn stuff. Um, but the wargs, it's cut in such a way that the wargs chase them to his house. And it, it pulls that off? I think so, yeah. Interesting. Like, I bought it. Um, and I and it worked well, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then I watched a little bit past. I watched, I watched probably half of the second movie. So I made it about halfway through the whole movie and then got distracted and turned it off. You know, but, you know what it was, though? Like, that, that sounds great and interesting where, like, you can... Condent, you can mm-hmm. cut from one scene to the other in a way where like you're changing the story that's being told yeah but for me the the cuts that bother me that i'm talking about is where like they obviously like the weird scene cuts like yeah. you or like no just like shots within a scene where you obviously shortened a shot yeah like not like you went instead of going from shot a to b you went mm-hmm. from shot a to c yeah not that but where you took half of shot a into half of shot c yeah and it just feels wrong. I will say the first, that first scene felt the most jittery from what I watched. Maybe I'll give yeah. it another try and get past I would, it. I would recommend it. Because um, I think, I again, I think the scene in Under the Mountain worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, they did something at the end of the first scene um, when they're singing at the table. They did something really interesting with that. Okay. Um, which is they made that song, which may have always been, about Oakenshield's story and all of that sort of stuff and intercut it with all of the flashback stuff. 
which I don't know why they didn't do that in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you get a, a truncated version of that story. Right. That lasts as long as that song. It's perfect. That's the correct decision. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it sets up that history and you get the visuals of all of that. And it is, it is visually told well enough that you know what's going on. Yeah. And then they go on their adventure. Nice. I like that. Like, and that's, as far as I know, the only place that footage is used. Nice. Instead of the like dozen times it's used in the dozen yeah. different flashbacks. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's some really interesting choices there. But I also, I don't know if you know, I love fan edits. Like that's a thing that I'm really interested and fascinated by. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, and so I can kind of overlook some jumpy cuts and things like that. Uh, because there's some really interesting ones out there uh, that, that range from the ambitious to the terrible. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of them are terrible. <laughs> um, and so I've seen a bunch of them and I go hunt them down because they're kind of hard to find because of all the copyright infringement sure uh, so I was very excited to see this one with the Hobbit and sort of see what they can do with it but I've seen um, the Phantom Edits which is someone who re-edited all three um, prequel Star Wars prequels mm -hmm. uh, and made them better not great but better um, he, he also did a director's commentary for all three of them which is fascinating Oh, interesting. Yeah, so you can turn on a, an audio track that is him talking through what he did step by step, which is really fascinating from that an editing standpoint. That does sound very interesting. And sort of why he made the choices he did and what he was doing and how he accomplished various things. Mm -hmm. uh, that, was, that was really fascinating to do. And that's one of the more famous fan edits that's out there yeah, in the world. Yeah, I've, I've heard of it. I know about it. Yeah. Um, I actually, when I find what I like, I save it to my Mega Drive because yep. it's easier for me to find again that way. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I've, I think I've got some of them. Um, yeah, Star Wars Phantom Cut. I've got that one. Uh, some of these aren't fan edits. They're just old. They're just obscure. Does something like Harmy's Despecialized count as a fan edit? Yeah, absolutely. And and Harmy's Despecialized is a really interesting fan edit. But there, it's not. It's a restoration, not an alteration. Yeah, but. It's it's being done by fans and it's illegal to own. You're not a sure. okay. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of fan edit. Yeah, okay. Um, but then there's stuff like uh, this is really interesting. I've got a um, one that's called Fifty Years of James Bond, which uses clips from every James Bond movie from Doctor No up until either Quantum of Solace or Skyfall, not the latest one, mm -hmm. and uses clips from each of those movies in sequential order and attempts to tell kind of a coherent story. Just a new James Bond story. Yeah. Huh. Um, and it's, it's a montage more than anything else. Like there's not a strong storyline. It's, it's all over the place, but it uses like roughly the first five minutes of Dr. No, then roughly the second five minutes of a different movie. And so each one comes from a different right. portion of the film at different points in time. And you see all the James Bonds played by different people. Huh. Um, and it's, it's, it's not like a coherent story. It's not a well-made film, but it's right. a really fascinating thing to watch. Of course. Yeah. Um, Steven Soderbergh did two that were really fascinating. Um, he did a black and white shot of Raiders with an all new soundtrack and no dialogue. Hmm. Which is is really interesting. It's it's about focusing on the visuals, right? Um, and sort of the the language that Spielberg used, referencing these old black and white serials, 
Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, but it's a it's an electronic music soundtrack, which is really fascinating. <laughs> what? That I think he made himself. Like I don't I don't know if it's like original songs or not. Weird. Separating Raiders from its dialogue and its score yeah. is going to make it because it want, he wants it's about different. the visual storytelling. Right. That's what he's trying to do. And then he recut 2001: A Space Odyssey. I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have both of those. Um, I have the, the Hobbits. I, I downloaded the Ludicrous and the Theatrical. I have both of those. Um, one that's I'm not I'm not seeing on here, and I always had trouble finding, so I'm gonna have to dig it up again. Um, was a version of Fight Club without the narration. Huh. Um, which is one of those sort of subtle changes, but makes it a very different feeling film. So you lose like I am Jack's loathing self-esteem or whatever. Like all of that narration is gone. And so you're just seeing Edward Norton do these things and Brad Pitt and other people right. do these things without sort of the that omniscient narrator talking you through everything. Right. I remember like the one of the first scenes where it's talking about the things you own actually own you like all the yeah. like pompous oh, yeah. like bloated dialogue or yeah the you know the monologue of yeah. the narration is it's dumb yeah um that sort of stuff's really interesting uh there was um i mean one of my first ones i encountered was a, a chronological cut of memento yeah uh-huh um which is is neat it's not a better film by <laughs> right any means. yeah memento is only good because of its, its structure right <laughs> Um, but there's hundreds of them out there of varying qualities, and I just think they're really fascinating. Um, a lot of people who are like learning editing will do fan cuts. Right. What a better way to just you know you've already got just pick, all this footage, pick yeah. the source material of yeah. your desire, and turn it and into and see what you, you want. can do with it. Yeah. I've always thought it would be really interesting to do. Um, like if I wanted to learn how to edit film, I would make a fan edit of the Lord of the Rings, and I would remove all the. Dumb, dumb stuff dumb peter jackson humor mm. like and that's it like i think lord of the rings movies are great they come in pints yeah all the i little, love that joke it's my only only joke i like but like from all the movie. yeah the thing yeah there's like gimli's fart jokes and like it, there's so many <laughs> As we've established farts are funny they are funny but you would it's you true. would cut all of Good that point. you would keep it a fi high fantasy yes i would keep it high fantasy instead of making it relatable to the masses with dumb comedy. masses yeah yeah um but i've never bothered yeah it's a lot of work sure yeah editing film is like incredibly complicated yeah. and it's a lot of work for something that you can't like profit from or sell or release <laughs> <laughs> right um and uh when you show me the the hobbit thing yeah um like i immediately thought of harmies despecialized mm -hmm. because the way the way I treat those is, those are my copies of Star Wars. Yeah. Do you have all of them? Yep. Because I don't actually have those. See, I have them. <laughs> yeah. They're in my movie library. Yeah. When I want to watch Star Wars, I just... Pull up that one. Open up iTunes and yeah. the, it's called Star Wars and I just watch it. Like, that's what <laughs> Star Wars is to me now. I don't own the official copies of, yeah. of Star Wars. Um, Do you have the super high def ones? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, the 40 gigabyte files? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as far as fan edits go, like those are the easiest ones in the world to find. Yeah, um, yeah. those are not too hard to, no. to locate. Um, but so when you show me the Hobbit one, I was like, "Is this something that can be just my version of the Hobbit?" I don't think where, so. Where like when I'm like I want to watch the Hobbit, 
I can watch this and be okay with it. Yeah, it might be. Like, again, if you can get past the first 10 minutes, we'll see. Yeah. But, uh, so, like, I will I will give it another chance. Yeah. I'll, like, sit down at home and watch it. It'll be better than being on a plane, too. Yeah. Um, uh, it may not be. Like, I, yeah. I, I have no skin in the game if you hate it and go, this is dumb. Right. It's also entirely possible that there is no such poss- yes. fan edit that, that could do that. Qualifies. Yeah. Because the source material is... A lot of the times, just really bad. Yeah. So yeah, well, that's kind of like the Phantom Edit series. It's like you can only get so good with what you've got. Right. And that's but that's a fascinating exercise to say like how good can I make this? Mm-hmm. Like how good can it become? Mm-hmm. Given how much yeah. garbage it is. Well, because I mean that's that's ninety percent of filmmaking is the editing. Right. And that's one of the things I really like about so Kevin Smith makes movies that are not necessarily good anymore. Like that's <laughs> I'm comfortable with that fact. Yeah. Um, he's making. Uh, I love Kevin Smith, but he breaks my heart. Uh, he's going to make another Jay and Silent Bob movie. Really? And he's announced it. Well, because he, he was trying to do Clerks 3, which I would have loved. Because mm-hmm. I, I think the Clerks films are his best movies. And I think they hold up the best. And Clerks 1 and Clerks 2 tackle sort of the same characters in the same universe 10 years apart at different stages of their life mm-hmm. and, and say something about that. And I think Clerks 3 could do that again. But one of the four key actors is said he's not going to do it. Mainly because he's he's pissed off at Miramax because Clerks 2, everybody got points on the back end. And Miramax did the Hollywood accounting. He's like, oh, no points, no money. It wasn't profitable. Um, he's kind of told that story in the past. but So Clerks 2 is not, Clerks 3 is probably not going to happen ever, maybe. Yeah. Which would be very sad, but can't make it come out of nothing. Right. Um, and then he's going to do Mallrats 2 as a TV series, but he shopped it around and no one wants to make it. Oh. Um, but he had he had the full cast on board. Like he did a Twitter series of all the primary cast members of Mallrats holding up two, you know, <laughs> peace sign. Um, and it's not going anywhere. She's like, so I own the rights to Jay and Silent Bob. I'm going to do Jay and Silent Bob reboot. And it's hmm. about Jay and Silent Bob going to Hollywood to try and stop a reboot of the Jay and Silent Bob franchise. That sounds exhausting. It's basically the plot of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Which is about Jay and Silent Bob going to, and it's not Jay and Silent Bob, it's Blunt Man and Chronic, because those are the comic characters based on Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back is about Jay and Silent Bob going to Hollywood to try and stop them making a Blunt Man and Chronic film. Huh. And so, like, I'm like, Kevin, you're really, you're really just scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Yeah. Like, I, you're making movies you love, and that's fine. But the point I was originally making is Kevin Smith edits all of his own movies, and he edits them as he's making them. So he will take the dailies, take all the footage he shot on a given day and go home and edit it overnight. And so for like Red State, at the rap party, Mm -hmm. he showed the first cut of the film. That's, that sounds like a horrible idea. From the perspective of like what? Um, like work-life balance for one well, sure, but it, it takes three <laughs> weeks so he he dies but you know but i mean it allows him to make the movie he wants to make sure but like couldn't he also do that and just like give himself more time probably but i think he's also like in the creative mold and making the movie involves editing it right like the yeah. The creative juices are just flowing yeah. so strongly from shooting for the day, mm-hmm. and that he's just in the zone yeah. to be editing. And he's only, he's only that in the recent years. Like he edited Clerks independently of filming Clerks. Like okay. that was later. I mean, like he's gotten into that habit. I but. mean, just like statistically, there has to be a pretty good reason why 
nobody else does that. <laughs> well, you also think most directors don't edit their own movies. True. True. Which, but, but then yeah. that would be that's an argument for for editors to be editing day of too. Like that that makes that an even better idea because then the work life balance isn't a problem. Like why aren't <laughs> editors just editing dailies as they go? I mean, arguably they should be. But no, arguably yeah. they shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like this idea. But, uh, I think it's important that, and one of the things that watching YouTube series is like this have made me more fascinated in, like movies with Mikey, Every Frame of Painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I started watching bits and pieces. I picked a couple at random of Good, Bla- Good Bad Flicks, which Mikey recommended in his panel. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm like, oh, good filmmaking is good editing. Like, I've come to realize it's not being a good director. It's being a really good editor. That's what makes a... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and a good DP also matters. But I every time I'm learning this, I'm like, so the director's doing less and less that I think he does, but they get all the credit. Unless, I mean, they work with their DP. They work with their editors. Right. Uh, but... Well, they're the boss. Yeah. They're the one directing well, but everyone a lot else. Of, a lot of... I have a feeling a lot of directors just hand it all off to an editor and say, make me a cut and then we'll figure it out afterwards. Yeah. And I'll come in and make changes as needed. Mm-hmm. But I really appreciate good editing. Yeah. It's very important. Yeah. I watch, uh, have you ever watched any of the project Greenlight series? No, they're, they're amazing. They're utterly fascinating. If you have HBO go or now you can watch the latest season cause it's on, it's on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first two seasons were on like, bravo or showtime or something but the fourth season is on which came out 10 years after the third season (laughs) is on hbo now go go now (laughs) um but it's it's a it makes for a great tv show and terrible movies so project greenlight the premise of project greenlight is um you remember goodwill hunting yeah i've seen it you know the story of goodwill hunting Mm -hmm. not the movie but the story of how it came to be yes yep yeah Ben Affleck was working with Kevin Smith on a film on Chasing Amy. Ben Affleck kept making up his own dialogue, and Kevin Smith said, if you want to make your own dialogue, go write your own movie. And it was Goodwill Hunting, and he won an Oscar. <laughs> True story. That happened. Yeah. <laughs> and Kevin Smith was one of the executive producers of Goodwill Hunting. Like, he financially backed that film. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like, so it they was, were friends. So it wasn't like a screw you, go make your own movie. It's like, go make your own movie. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so Project Greenlight started as a, a vanity project for Ben and Matt. Um, that was also a reality TV show. Right. Like we're gonna find a director, and we're gonna give him a million dollars to make a movie, and we're gonna make it into a reality TV show. Um, and so there's an, there's an audition process, and directors make their own short films, trying to audition, and there's a final round, and it's and then the majority of Project Greenlight is just a documentary about making the movie, right? Uh, and. I've learned from watching that show that I can tell a good editor from a bad editor by how they act when editing the film, which is usually the last couple episodes of a Project Greenlight season is them editing because mm-hmm. they've shot everything and then so they're, they're editing. It's the last step, yeah. yeah. Um, and the bad editors are just dicks in the editing room. Really? Because they don't know how to edit. Hmm. Um, but, they, but they're in charge. They're the boss. And so they have to tell the editor what to do, whether or not it's the right choice. Hmm. Like the good directors, well, there's not been a good director on Project Greenlight ever. <laughs> None of the films they've made are good. Interesting. Makes good TV shows, bad movies. Yep. Um, but like the most recent season, I hated the director the whole time anyway because 
I hated him. I hated him so much. Um, but he he was a dictator in the editing booth, and they spent like days cutting and recutting and cutting and recutting. And the movie he made at the end was terrible. Hmm. I tried to watch it and I gave up halfway through. Wow. Multiple times. <laughs> was there a good movie possible? No. No? Because he also wrote it. Oh, okay. And he thinks he's funny, but he's not funny. Oh, that's a very bad He's making a black comedy, dark humor. So it just wasn't funny. It was, yeah, it was not funny. And then he cast two people in like the lead roles and wanted them to improvise half the script anyway. And he's like, we'll just use their funniest bits. And none of it was funny. Oh my God. Yeah. That sounds like, so that's the kind of person who just like simply doesn't realize how hard stuff is. It seems like writing comedy is super hard. Yeah. Like directing a movie really hard. Editing is incredibly hard. Like you can't just wing it. Well, he also spent like the first four or five episodes campaigning to get the the opportunity to shoot the movie on film instead of digital. Oh my god, because he's a auteur. Yes, of course. It wouldn't look right. You can do that if you're. I don't know who's our favorite. Uh, oh yeah, Christopher Nolan. Chris Nolan. Yeah, you, you can, can do that Chris if you're Christopher Nolan. Nolan. You can't do that if you're desperate to have a movie made. J.J. Yeah, Abrams, you can do that if you're shooting Star Wars. You yep. can shoot on film. Yep. Uh, yeah, if Lucasfilm picks you specifically to make the first of the new Star Wars yeah. trilogy, you can say yes if I get to do it on film. And they'll go, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You, you got it, J.J. Yeah. You can't do that if you're asking for a million dollars to shoot a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting, like, this guy tried to do all this stuff and, mm-hmm. and failed. Uh, I recently rewatched uh, Upstream Color. I love that movie. Which is Shane Carruth's yeah. creation. Yeah. Um, I've only seen it once, but it stuck in my mind like a toothpick. Yes. Yeah. And that's exactly the experience I had. I watched it soon after it came out yeah. a couple years ago. And it was one of the most like intense movie watching experiences yeah. I've ever had. Like I'm used to, I watched it by myself at home. I'm used to just like, you know, throw a movie on. Like, yeah. I'm looking at my phone a little bit, eating some food like watching it and paying attention but not like being enthralled right but like i turned on the movie and from like the very beginning i sat there and i was like hugging my knees and like staring at the screen the whole time like i didn't touch any water i didn't touch my phone like just there i just watched it and so i rewatched it uh last week or two weeks Mm -hmm. ago and had a little more relaxed experience obviously but just amazed by how that is the creation of one person. Yes. Except for the other performances. Yeah. Because he's the lead actor, too. He is. He did that in Primer, too. Yep. He wrote, directed, DP'd, um, edited, did the music. Yeah, he was a composer. Like, lead actor. Like, he did every role in that movie. Made it yeah. almost entirely by himself. And it's... A masterpiece? Cinematographer. Editor. There's actually two editors, apparently. Oh, really? Him and someone else? Uh, Yeah. Uh, David Lowry, uh, who has edited a bunch of stuff. Nice. Well, he directed a bunch of stuff. He directed Pete's Dragon. Okay. The new one. Yeah. But, like, Upstream Color is a 
masterpiece. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like Primer is really good too. I really like Primer, but it's like a exercise almost. Yeah, yeah. Because well, he made Primer for like three dollars, <laughs> right? Like yeah, Primer and Upstream Color was, was all, cheap. Yeah, was fifty thousand dollars. That's very cheap, right? And it looks like it was made with millions. Yeah. Um, but it's incredible, and like it's it's. I can't understand how one person can create that. Yeah. But it also like took him 10 years or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? A like a long like time. That's how it works. Cause you spend yeah. a couple years writing and you spend a couple years shooting yeah. and then you spend uh, a couple years editing. Charlie Kaufman's kind of in the same room. He doesn't, he doesn't direct his own, although he's directed his last two figures. He directed uh synecdoche and Anomalisa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Schenectady, Synecdoche, New York is still maybe the best film I've ever seen. You're one of those people. <gasps> That's one. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's certain people who think it's the best movie ever. Cause it is. <laughs> Are you not a fan? Did you not enjoy it? Uh, no, I liked it very much. I would not come close to calling it the best movie ever. Really? But it's be, yeah. But like, you're exactly the kind of person who's <laughs> supposed to like it. Right? Like it, the, I, I loved watching it and I thought it was really good. It was very mm-hmm. emotionally intense. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I don't relate to any of it, so it hmm. can't it can't impact me the way it can impact someone like you. Yeah, uh, yeah. You should watch the. Um, I think it's your movie sucks. Did Mikey recommended it in his panel uh, a three part series on it? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, that made me love it even more. <laughs> really? Yeah, because uh, he noticed he noticed like he spends the first like five minutes talking about the title card. <laughs> oh my god. Um. <laughs> And then moves on from there, but like, I've never seen a Terrence Malick film, just ever. Oh, really? I have not. Uh, but Synecdoche, New York, makes me feel the way people talk about Terrence Malick films. <laughs> and what is that feeling? It is about everything in the universe. Yes. Yeah, I get that with Terrence Malick movies. I've, I've never seen one, so I, I don't know if I would feel that way the- walking out of a Terrence Malick film. But yeah. They are, Terrence Malick movies also aren't like some people think Terrence Malick movies are the best movies ever. Yes, yes, um, many people think that. I've seen is it Thin Red Line? Is that his war movie? Yes. And I saw Tree of Life, and yeah. they're both really good, like beautiful and very much like they're about everything yeah. in the universe. But I can I can see that for uh, Synecdoche. Yeah, so, but it's it's about everything in a very personal way. Yeah. Um, so like it's, you're, you're watching one person suffer the experience of everything in the universe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, such, such a good film. It's horrifically sad. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like it, it, I was v- very, very sad for like two days after watching. That's that fair. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I'm comfortable calling it one of the best films ever if not the best film wow yeah it's good yeah it's but yeah it, but again like like upstream color and whatnot like the creation of one person yeah very much yeah even because he did direct that i don't know if he edited it but it was his first direct it was his directorial debut right like how come on <laughs> <laughs> like he, he'd been writing movies for a while because he did he did Human Nature, which I've never seen and I have no desire to see because it looks dumb. Mm. I think it was like Charlie Kaufman trying to make a real movie. <laughs> and then he did Being John Malkovich. He did uh, Adaptation, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Love Adaptation. Uh, he did 
Eternal Sunshine, which I think got him the most critical acclaim at the time. Yeah. I think people were like, oh, this is going to be a good movie. As, right. where, whereas those us weirdos in the corner were like, they're all good movies. <laughs> they're all amazing. They're good movies, Adaptation Brent. confused me. Yeah, but no, this is the best movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those sort of unique, like people who wouldn't call themselves an auteur but have such a singular voice in their creation of film, which Shane Ruth does. Right. Which Kevin Smith did for a long time. I think he has struggled with that sometimes. Right. Because I think, I think his first four films are nearly perfect. Wow. Like, I think Clerks is a perfect film. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I don't think it's a great film. But it's perfect. But it's perfect. I don't think it's one of the best films of all time, but it's perfect. I saw that. I, I've been playing with the you wine have. bottle cork all night, and I keep dropping it, so yeah. now I'm just going to leave it on the floor. It's okay. I got a fidget cube in the mail because I bought one. The, the fidget cube? The official one from yeah. Kickstarter. Not the knockoffs. Is it fun? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. I have one at work and one at home. I'm seeing a lot of ads for it on Tumblr. Yeah. They're, they're as, well, cool. as well as weird internet furniture. Internet furniture? It's, fur- it's internet. It's furniture that they want me to buy on the internet. Okay. I mean, you have a lot of furniture already. I think you have pretty much what you need. I do need a new couch. Yeah. Does Tumblr know I need a new couch? Do <laughs> yes. they know my couch is bad? Yes. Is it? It's because I look at Tumblr mostly on my couch. Probably. Tumblr's looking back on that couch looks bad. <laughs> you get a better couch. You kind of need a bed. I do. I do need a bed. I'm torn over this. I would like to use my next chunk of money mm-hmm. that I spend to buy a bed because I yeah. don't own a bed. I have a mattress on a floor, mm-hmm. which is like really against my whole. Vibe. Yeah, although it it does fit nicely into the recently divorced category. That's the thing I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> yeah, I really want to avoid the like walk into your apartment and it looks like this guy just got divorced. Yeah. Impression. And for the most part, I'm killing it. Yeah, you're doing a great job. And then you walk to my bedroom and it's like, "Oh. <laughs> yep. Recently divorced." Um, I'd like to buy a bed, but like Having a bed to put your mattress in doesn't really change the experience of sleeping on your bed. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, maybe I should buy a couch yeah. before I buy a bed because having a good couch radically changes the experience of being on your couch. <laughs> That's true. But I don't have a bed at all. You don't. So I, I don't know what decision to make. Well, I, I guess the the... The question that I would pose to you in mm-hmm. helping to make you in helping you make this decision um, is is somewhat personal, but uh, you would definitely benefit from a new couch. Like that's unquestionable. You would have a better experience overall from that. True. Um, are you worried about someone else having a better experience from your bed? <laughs> <laughs> because that seems to be the key factor here. Um, I am not. Okay. Then buy the couch. Got it. And you know what's happening now? Okay. Uh, Theo really loves the couch. Sure. It's a great couch for a cat. He gets his hair on it and I don't, and he destroys it and I don't care because it's a crappy couch and I'm not worried about him destroying it. But he started to do this thing where it's like the couch is raised off the floor. It's got legs. Mm -hmm. So he'll like be laying down facing the couch and he'll like grab it. 
Yeah. So like one of his paws goes under and one, one of his paws is like up the side uh-huh. or up the front. It's a very cat thing. Yeah. And he scratches and kicks it and freaks out. Yeah. But he does this thing where he like locomotes himself across the front <laughs> face of the couch where he's like not really touching the floor, but he's just like, <laughs> like scratching and clawing his way across the couch. That's pretty great. Horizontally. Um, but the there's some material that is making up the bottom of mm-hmm. the couch. And it, yeah, that like black flimsy materials on the bottom of every couch. Yes. Um, and I am starting over the last couple of weeks, I'm starting to find that everywhere. <laughs> it is all over my apartment because he scratches and freaks out about it yeah. and pulls off little chunks. But it, it's like this nasty hair. Mm-hmm. And it's really gross. It's just everywhere. And now there's like bits of it that like stick out from under my couch. And <laughs> it's just so gross. I think my apartment makes a better impression with a better couch than it does having a bed. Yeah. So, well, it wasn't the impression I was worried about. It was about the experience. But my experience yeah. of it is half the impression that it gives. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Because you're very, you're a very visually inclined creature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so new couch, new couch. Yeah. Now it's important to know you still have a cat. And so your couch will be destroyed eventually. Right. And so you have to get an okay couch, not a great couch. Right. I'm not yeah. And I'm not gonna yeah, I'm not gonna spend a bunch of money on a fancy couch. Yeah. But um Thankfully, like he mostly just scratches the side mm-hmm. that is in his little yeah, corner. Where he hangs out. Which isn't visible. Yeah. So I mean As long if, as you don't move your couch. If he wants to Oh no, I mean that's the couch spot. It can't go anywhere else. You could flip sides. No, I couldn't. <laughs> that's the TV's that's the TV side. That's the couch side. Which is actually the opposite of how the apartment is designed for it to be. Like, the TV is definitely meant to be on that side and the couch on the other. Yeah? How do you know? The way the outlets are laid out? Yeah, that makes sense. So, there's... Are you a- running a cable? Hmm? you running a cable under the carpet or... No. So, behind my couch, there's two outlets in the center of the wall. Oh. And behind my... TV stands, mm-hmm. there's two outlets on the sides, like out on uh, the edges. Like couch side. Right. Yeah. That would be on the sides of the couch, so you can plug in lamps and yeah. whatnot next to the sides of your couch. Um, but I do it the other way around because the my speakers and stuff can be connected to a light switch outlet. Oh. So I can flip a light switch, turn on my speakers without turning on my television and airplane music to adjust my speakers. Fancy pantsy. So I could flip them and run a cable under the carpet, but I don't yeah, feel like doing that. That's fair. Yeah. So that's the couch side. And that's the TV side. Yeah. At least you got it figured out. I don't think I could change it. This has been another episode of Couch Talk. Yeah. Welcome to Couch Talk. My name is Jesse. My name is Couch Talk. <laughs> <laughs>